everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Kylie Wong-Dolan, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Robert Borowski. Rob is a Professor of Anthropology at the Hawaii Pacific University. He is also director of the Centre for Public Anthropology and editor for the California series in public anthropology. Rob has published widely. He's written numerous books, including Making History, Pukapukan and Anthropological Constructions of Knowledge, Yanomami, The Fierce Controversy and What We Can Learn From It, and his most recent, An Anthropology of Anthropology, Is It Time to Shift Paradigms? It was Rob who coined the term public anthropology, which he has described as a way of putting anthropology and anthropologists to use to address problems beyond the discipline. It aims to encourage conversation and action within and outside anthropology, and more than anything, to foster social change. In December last year, Rob delivered an animated and powerful keynote at the annual conference for the Australian Anthropological Society here in Canberra. The theme was values in anthropology, values of anthropology. Rob spoke of some of the challenges of the discipline that make it hard for anthropologists to engage with real-world issues and to properly serve the communities we work with, or, in his words, ensuring anthropology matters to others. Today, Rob and I extend on this. We ask, who is anthropology serving? If we want anthropology to do good, how do we decide what that good actually is and how do we measure it? We talk about metrics as one way of measuring program effectiveness, their pitfalls and potentialities, and how telling stories can help us to move beyond some of their typical constraints. Rob also tells me stories of his own fieldwork in Puka Puka and the importance of longevity and reciprocity in fieldwork relationships. And, while I confess to being a bit of a sceptic, Rob, it seems, ever lives his values, encouraging me in my work to seek opportunities for action and change. He reminds me that there are always cracks and crevices in the systems we're part of, even if we don't see them immediately. He talks about hegemonic openings and what it takes to prise these apart. Part of this, Rob tells me, is courage and grit. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some insight on today's interview. So this is it, me and Professor Robert Borowski. What I'm most interested in is the values that you hold and and how they drive your approach in anthropology. I wanted to start with your latest book, which is the work that I've recently read and become most engaged with. So this is an anthropology of anthropology. And you argue in that book for an anthropology that's not just about knowledge production and publication, but about action. It seems to be about doing good for people, the people we work with in the field, and about making our work have impact in the world as well. I think it's something really innovative and something really refreshing. And that speaks to me, this this idea of having an impact on the world. I'm curious about what inspired you to write this and what the response has been to your work. What inspired me was... Let's see, I did a book, the Yanomami book in 2006, dealing with the controversy. And I thought, was thinking about doing a broader book about anthropology. And I did this one, Why a Public Anthropology? And I published it out and I didn't like it. It didn't seem that right. So I took it back 
And then I wrote this. I took parts of that. In developing the California series in public anthropology, trying to figure out how to make of an impact, there was this whole controversy about is it public anthropology, is it applied anthropology, is it development or engaged in anthropology mm -hmm. or all these other things. And it leaves me sort of blank. I remember we were at a lunch with Paul Farmer, Philippe, on one side, Bouguay, Nancy Chevron on the other, and someone asked me, Paul, what's the difference between these? And Paul just said, does it really matter? And that's my position. Does it really matter, all these differences and engagements? What we're trying to do is reach out to the public. So I wrote this first draft, if you will, my public anthropology, and I saw, oh, this is, some of it was good, the beginning chapters, but not later on. And I said, I have to really rewrite this since I self-published it or put it out because it was trying new ways of having open access. I took it back and I did this book. And I like it better. It's more refined. I started talking about moving away from Do No Harm in the Yanomami book because I, we saw all this details about the AAA's code, American Anthropological Association's code of Do No Harm. And that seemed not appropriate for the Yanomami. <laughs> they were having a lot of harm done to them, but trying to do benefits. And here you had this situation where these people were widely known, partly through Chagnon's books, partly through Tim Ash's movies, and you would think that anthropologists felt really obligated to do something for them, and they weren't necessarily doing a great deal. It was certainly aggrandizement saying they were going to help them, they're going to take this blood samples, they're going to report back about the diseases they had, and they never did. They were going to re give back supplies, and they never did. So it started me thinking about moving beyond do no harm and trying to really benefit others. The idea of how is an open question. It varies with different contexts, with different people. And I just trying to suggest some ways to do that. But the idea really is the focus should not be on your own aggrandizement or publishing out stuff that many will not read, may not necessarily be cumulative or refined, but trying to help others in the very difficult times that we face right now. Can you tell me a bit about how we think about and make decisions about what it is to do good, and then how do we enact those? Okay, that becomes unbelievably complicated <laughs> in the abstract, but it's not so hard in real life. There's um, Rawls, a philosopher, talked about the veil of ignorance. And the idea was you divide things up. You had a choice of A or B. And neither side knew which one they were going to get. So they tried to make it so they could live with either one. Right. And so there was a veil of ignorance of which one they would get. Mm -hmm. Now, when you work with informants, you clearly know what the advantages of what you're giving them they may say, oh, this is great. You're giving me these stainless steel fish hooks, which I used to do in, when I was in Puka Puka, um, where I did my field work in the Cook Islands. But those weren't so expensive, and they were really enhancing my career by giving me this information. Mm. So it's a little unclear. But you figure it out by dealing with the people. It wasn't just a financial thing. What really bonded me to, I think, the people in Puka Puka was not simply giving them back at one point in time, but over the next 35 years, keep on giving stainless steel fish hooks to the informants or their relatives, giving 
$200 to the island council, and just continuing it. The continuity of a relationship meant a great deal. So there's a humor to me. My daughter who lived with us, she was one when we went, and she was four and a half, obviously, when we left, and she wanted to go back and visit on her own. So she went back to Puka Puka, and they just were terribly impressed by her, and they fed her all the time for the two weeks that she was there. And you'd say, what's going on here? And from a Puka Puka view, it was very clear that I had built up all this obligation from them for being so kind and generous for 30 or so years that they felt they had to return it by helping take care of my daughter. And the idea now she's gone back and she um, was teaching there for a while, but she's now done a movie. And the idea here is you want to have a relationship that continues, a relationship of caring and trust and trying to benefit others in a way that's meaningful. Um, that, it seems to me, is what you want to do. Doing good is benefiting others, not just yourself, in ways that they find good. In an abstract way, you say, well, if you do good, this could happen, so forth. But you try and work it out with them in a way that empowers them, yeah. not just yourself. There's something that you said there about the longevity of the relationship that you yes. and your, your family had. And I think that really hits home for me. I, I often feel in a research relationship and all kinds of helping relationships, mm -hmm. somebody who is in a position of power has very little at stake and it takes a lot for them to feel that there could be something at stake. Right. Do you feel like over a lifetime when you become entailed with a group of people, then there really is something at stake? You're, it strikes me you're always vulnerable. I'm not sure about some people in elite status who just feel they definitely know what's right. It strikes me in a relationship, husband and wife, if you will, you're always vulnerable. You want to do good, but in living life, you're not, you're not in fully control of life, to say the least. And so because of that, you have to sort of work things out, adjust, have a resilience of how to do things. I don't know uh, what other people have, but as far as I know, I'm not in control of life. I'm not in control of this conversation even, or <laughs> my talks, and they did things I wasn't expecting to do in our talk, but it was good, engaged, and there's a sense that that's what life's about. You're not in control, and you have to live with it, adjust, and you're vulnerable in that, but then that leaves room for newness and possibility. I feel that you might be somewhat unique in that sense, though. A lot of people who do research, and I feel like your call to do an anthropology that's beneficial to others yeah, is to correct really this, haven't. right? That people don't feel this way. Can I ask personally, they don't? Well, you're suggesting that some change is really necessary, yeah, right? I do. I, here's my weakness, okay? I continually misinterpret people thinking they're trying to do more good benefiting others more than they sometimes do. That's sort of beautiful and sort of tragic. <laughs> it's a little tragic. I now, think I see it the other way. I'm sorry, what did you say? You, you think it's the other way? I think I'm becoming every day more skeptical. Now, th there's a hypocrisy in that, I guess, in that here I deal with all these very famous people, like, um, and I'll get to the reaction to in anthropology of anthropology, but the idea is that I'll deal with all these rather important people and you can say, how can I get 35 blurbs? How can I, in an early book, Assessing Cultural Anthropology, get all these prominent people to participate? Levi Strauss, Clifford Gertz, Marilyn Strathern, all of these, um, Maurice Godelier, Robin Harris, who can go on. Keep going. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> there are all these things. But the sense is, for the blurbs, to understand where the other people are at 
and giving them a chance to say something that enhances them as well as myself, to let them shine in their own way, and then to use that, to try and find a common ground that enhances them. If you just make it about yourself dealing with very prominent people, you're screwed, because they do not like that. But they do understand, coming from a from my position, which is less threatening, I'm not trying to challenge their position and dominance, because I'm from a less prestigious school, have less prestige than many of these people, if you, I'm not sure how you measure it, but I'm not threatening. And the idea is to then find common ground that enhances them, that enriches them. But nobody's ever asked me yet how I got 35 blurbs. I was very impressed. <laughs> I was incredibly impressed. Someone told me, um, emailed and said, well, Rob, I wrote all the blurbs. It really looks good. I think I might actually look at the book. So... I mean, you, you've spoken a little bit about your approach and your ethos in approaching other people of right. high status. And you really feel that their engagement with your book and the writing of these blurbs, that was elevating for them as well. You, you felt that that I was something that many of them to them. did it as a favor. Some yeah. of them enjoyed it. David Graeber is a very interesting case. Go on. <laughs> Here I called him cold, okay? She didn't know who I was. Or ah. I emailed him and discussed it and he was open to it. And one time I got him, called him when he was in the middle of something else, and that didn't go as well. But by and large, he's a gracious guy because I wrote about how he had been, excuse me, saying screwed at Yale mm. and how he came back and I talked to him about his resilience. And he says, now, that's an interesting phrase. Nobody has said impressed by my resilience in this difficulty. And he went on about how for several years he applied all these places and he couldn't get a job. He had really been blackballed by Yale. And so we talked, he wrote something. He said, here, Rob. And then he said, oh, by the way, do you want me to write something more? I have something about politics. And so I said, yeah, sure, Dave. And what he did was he um, then wrote about the statement how all these anthropologists study politics and power relations, but they don't study it within the discipline. And he said, um, I was one of the few people who had the requisite courage to do that. Yeah. And that felt sort of good <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I said, I'll take that. Right. Um, I really see this like mutual empowerment. It's a beautiful right. thing. Being somewhat on the margins that you don't believe, I don't have as much to lose in terms of status. I have a caring, a will to try and do some good, some social justice. I'm not sure exactly why. Um, right. I have two brothers. They're both psychologists. They're more concerned about themselves and about their worlds. Is that not something you want to retract? No, I can think probably agree. <laughs> um, I get along with them rather well by focusing on their concerns, not just mine. But why I became really passionate about social justice, I'm not really sure, Kylie. <laughs> but I really do feel a sense that we should do right by others. That's just an intuitive, a really strong intuitive sense that you have yeah, about it's intuitive your role sense in the world. Of, of social justice, of equality. Someone, or you come up to me and say, oh, blah, 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 and I start feeling a little uneasy that it makes me really above you in some way. I don't get any hyper, sort of extra energy from you telling me how great I am. I think what I would rather do is interact with you and have a sense of you and me together and whether I can subvert your opinions and change them into something I like, maybe, maybe not. One never knows. But the idea is to interact in a way that is empowering to both. Do you feel that intuitive sense that you have? I really feel that that's something that you're trying to ask of other people in this discipline. Yes, yes. Is that something that I can see this work is really convincing and it's a really convincing effort at doing that. 
Well, how... thank you. I'm not sure they're all convinced. <laughs> well, I think in some sense I'm similar to you. So you're right. Yeah, well, that, you're welcome. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't need to twist my arm. But, yeah, and that's a, re- a reason why I was really hoping to speak with you. How effective do you think this effort will be with other people who may not automatically feel that way? Realistically, it probably won't be that successful. Realistically, there's many people, maybe most anthropologists, are caught up in their own worlds, like many people are, trying to just get ahead. That's irrelevant. What's relevant is I try and do it. I try and move forward with it. Eventually, they may come around. I think I was telling you before about my book, Remembrance of Pacific Pasts. This was one of my favorite books. It came out 20 years ago, in which Pacific historians, prominent people here at ANU, talked of Pacific Island engagement with history, making it moving from the metropole to the islands and the importance of Pacific Islanders and the telling of the history and the ability to not be just dominated by a fatal impact, but were empowered. I thought, oh, that meant that Pacific Islanders could, in their own way, own styles, tell their own history too. It wouldn't just be Westerners interpreting Pacific Islanders, but Pacific Islanders would talk for themselves. So we had Chance, we had poems, we had a short story by Patricia Grace, we had a poem by this poet large from the United States, Merwin. We had all these different forms, and many Pacific Islanders liked it, and other people acknowledged its presence, but it didn't go over in this big impact. I thought, oh, here we have Pacific Islanders in their own terms engaging with Western historians in their own terms, and you as a reader make the history. It's called um, an invitation to, to make history. And the idea is that you as a reader then move these together to empower you in the process. I was always feeling, geez, what did I do wrong or what went wrong with this? And then I decided to make it into public access to open it up. And in talking to people about it, I found that, oh, yeah, they liked it, but it was just ahead of its time. And the idea is that sounds, oh, that sounds very good. That sounds like I'm progressive and smart. But that sounds pretty lousy in some way because, you know, you hope you don't <laughs> die before they <laughs> pity Van Gogh. We'll repromote it. Um, here's this famous painter, Van Gogh, who just died in his pictures. I guess it was his sister or one of his relatives, then made this big thing of it. So I'm taking in some people who were very nice about it commenting on the blurbs, and many Pacific Islanders commented on it in this new edition, and we'll see where that goes. The ad here is trying to have all these people of prominence giving blurbs that may attract some attention, may not. How far does that go? Will they actually read this, or will they just sort of get a glimpse of it? So where's the impact of the in anthropology of anthropology? Who knows? It's always a problem if you're just a little ahead of your time in giving people a way to publish more papers in some direction, then they'll cite you. They'll often cite you in passing, as I've said in that book. Mm-hmm. But the question is, if you really want to open up new possibilities to them, that's a little more progressive. That's opening spaces, and some may take it, some may not. So I don't really know what the reaction will be. Mm. I do know that when I say, what did Gene Comroff, Paul Farmer, Philippe Guard, Nancy Shep Hughes have in common, and I give these quotes from them and so forth. 3,000 people click on it to see, which is, I guess, impressive. Who knows beyond that? Who knows what happens beyond clicks? It's like in the blurbs, people respond positively to the vision. It's not clear that people will carry it out. This is something that you said to me earlier in the week. 
about how it, quite often you give these lectures and, and people stand up and roar and they're, they're really excited and they feel, I think, maybe emotionally compelled and excited to take on board these ideas into their practice. And then, as you said, they go away and return to how things are. It's, it just right. is too hard. Like at that talk, you were there when I said you're participating in your own oppression <laughs> and all these people were clapping and, and really enthused about Apparently that. Apparently we're quite happy to continue <laughs> doing so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> There's no signal that we I, wanted I said, to change. That was a little scary to say. Um, what's their reaction going to be? And just had to smile that, yeah, I mean, but this is what's happening. This is real. Doing it in the drones, if you will, the system of continuing on because that's what's expected rather than trying to circumvent. I'm not saying you challenge the system directly. Okay. Because <laughs> I do want to ask about that. None of us have that power. Chris Shaw, who we quite like, was saying that about this metric system and the sanity of it, that we had to challenge it. And it doesn't seem to me that we have that power to reframe it directly. Mm-hmm. But hegemonic systems to function in a changing world that they don't fully control and all the ambiguities and uncertainties have openings, flaws, hypocrisies and so forth that you can, looking carefully, you can find them and then use those to drive a wedge into new possibilities. Okay, so we're not taking down a... a... (laughs) Let's take the REF, the Research Excellence Framework. Please. Okay, the mother of all things, Thatcher (laughs) started it for accountability of academics. Okay. And they did in all these metrics and all these things. Now, they came to social impact. So there's 25% of the assessment was on impact. Right. And how did they measure impact? And here I'm trying to figure out, this is really interesting. How do they do that? And it's by stories. These people were telling these wonderful stories about how it meant it. And they had people in their own words, straight ethnography. People saying, well, this really helped us do this. And the evaluators were just ate it up. They just said, this is fantastic. You'll see it in the book. All these wonderful things. This is what we should be doing because it was here they're doing all these numbers because numbers are supposed to be something solid, which Mm. they aren't often, but they convey that. Mm. And then there's this space, impact, and they go to the natural abilities of humans as storytellers and that they responded to the stories that other people said. In the REF, the mother (laughs) of all metric systems. So I had wanted to ask about these stories. So it's it's the participants or or the participants in certain programs or research studies. They ask, they get the people, (laughs) maybe fudged, who knows? I know, I wonder (laughs) about this too. I mean, but they get, (laughs) just sign here. The ethnographer says, well, they did this, they helped to bring new water to the place or they helped develop this. And they say that, but they don't give numbers. They can give some numbers, but then they have the people talk in their own words about what it meant to them. And that talking in their own words, what it meant to them, resonated with these people who were looking at numbers all day long. That's quite magical. Because it's sort of the counterpoint. You can't just have all of one. You have thesis and antithesis. Sure. Uh, (laughs) But it's the idea that the hegemonic system is not so complete, that there aren't spaces to make it workable by having these right. other things in it. And so in, in some spaces, these openings are already available to us. Yeah, they're, as they're real. The you just have okay. to figure out where they are. I think today about the difference between anthropology and sociology, I have no idea what the difference is between anthropology and history in the Pacific. 
they they just tremendously overlap from Greg Denning and Marshall Salins to all these other people who write about it. At least in the United States, all these disciplines were all together in social sciences into the 1890s. When they went into the university, they had to break up into departments. They had to become bureaucratized and routinized in Weber's terms. And so what happens is, in becoming different departments, they had to show their difference from each other. Mm -hmm. And so they make all these differences about sociology, anthropology. Who the hell knows the difference? One person will say, this is a difference between them. Another person will say, no, that's a difference. It's an absurd question. We should be studying problems that matter. I do love how you say in your in your book you speak about purity and impurity right. between anthropology departments and the rest of the world. Right. How stable are those divisions now? I would hope they're getting weaker. Anthropologists are vulnerable. In the United States, the American Anthropological Association membership has declined. I think it was 12,000 some years ago, and now it's eight. It may be a little higher than eight, but there's a sense that they are vulnerable. And if they're vulnerable... Let's use it for good. Let's get them to look at new options. And I think some people see public anthropology or these other things as a new option. I'd like to sort of lead in some directions be that beyond the book. I don't know if I will, if I have the energy to do all these things. Mm. I'm involved in a lot. But the idea is that you want people to really tell stories that matter, do things that matter, to inspire people. When I talk to Nancy Shepard Hughes, she tells me her latest thing. When she went to Brazil, one time they had a little parade in which they, this person who had been part of the old corrupt regime was paraded in front of everybody, and they thanked her for helping them. And then she went to the European court, and they're talking about organ donation and changing these. And Philippe has done all these different things. And Paul Farmer, of course, has done tremendous work. He... Um, really has made a difference in the lives of millions of people. So there's models out there, but the idea is what can you do yourself without, with courage? What can you do that you think would be meaningful, Kylie? I thought I was asking the questions here. <laughs> Honestly, I enrolled in a PhD because I do want to be able to have more knowledge and experience and a platform to be able to speak about things that are important to me. That does sound quite individualistic, but I do want to have to create a space for myself where I can advocate for the needs of certain You can be taken seriously. That's really well said. <laughs> you can feel empowered in that process. Yeah. And in that process, you can emphasize values that you affirm, yeah. appreciate. And so I you're think, like many people like me. <laughs> well, I said maybe we thought we thought similarly about service and about yeah. contributing and about using privileges right. and tools. I was thinking I'm the third brother, the youngest of three brothers. Okay, I and thought you might my, be the youngest. Um, maybe a sense of justice and injustice. I don't really understand, but there is a visceral sense that we should not be just about ourselves, but about caring and others and trying to do good. And that's very stressful today in the United States with the present administration, President Trump. <laughs> it's really stressful to see it and confront it. And yet, um, at the same time, you have to do what you can, small steps of good. 
you just you try and do the best you can and leave it at that. It kind of pains me to go back a little bit because we're speaking about such optimistic and bright things. But you mentioned Graeber before and his yep. what happened with him at Yale. I do want to discuss a little bit about some of the challenges that he experienced, for one, when trying to challenge a system. He claimed to be an anarchist. He was in the 1% um, on Wall Street thing. And I think that one you can claim to be an anarchist, which is fine, but the 1% Wall Street thing frustrated or irritated some it was too donors far. at Yale. How much freedom do you think anthropologists have to challenge what, what's expected of them in terms of churning out publications or what's at stake if they... It varies tremendously. I'm in a somewhat unique position, I think. I'm not sure if I told you this before. I got along very well with the previous provost, and he said, Rob, you have to understand that people don't understand what you're doing, but you also have to understand they don't want to understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm out in a different world as long as I am in good terms with the president and the provost. So the people, by and large, leave me alone. I don't attend faculty meetings. <laughs> I just I used to attend some of them, and, and they just... Anarchy. I get depressed by um, <laughs> just listening to these things. And I think that's rare. I think most people, in some sense, have to conform to get tenure. And then they become part of the system. But it's always a matter of courage. And what's courage to you? Daring to go where you've never gone before. Or having the courage to, to affirm something that's important to you. To stand up for something that's important. To have grit. Okay, here we'll get to a personal story. Maybe I shouldn't say this. Who knows? But you, you can tell me later <laughs> how, how you feel about it. Okay, well, you, you can decide. I'll have disseminated it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I was on a ladder in 2011, and I fell off, and I landed on some coral, and it cracked a bit of my spine. I had a crack in my spine. Sorry, what did you land on? On uh, coral. Coral. Coral, yeah. Okay, and... And it was very painful. They put me on various drugs. It was a time when opiates were being passed out freely, and I got onto them, and it wasn't clear if I was being habituated or addicted. It wasn't a serious, serious case, but I certainly did not like it, and I was trying to find ways to get off it. And they weren't that overly helpful about trying to really get off it. They just said, just do it. I found a place in Jacksonville, Florida. It was in the New York Times about something, and someone had done something. And so I said, oh, geez, that would be interesting. And looked at various places. And I went there to go weaned off in eight weeks from the opiates. That was courage. It was brutal doing it. Um, fortunately, my wife was with me. She's very helpful. It made a major difference. But courage is being able to stick through something because it made a difference in our lives, uh, my life certainly, to get off this. Philippe was saying, wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, yeah. But I also had mononucleosis at the same time, which made me utterly exhausted, and yet I persisted. What gave me the ability to persist in such difficult, in some ways, brutal times? Who knows? But that probably is courage. I really love the word grit, mm-hmm. but I hear it very seldom. It seems to me grit, forbearance, persistence, they're very humble, they're very quiet values, and they also seem quite old. 
I don't I don't hear them. <laughs> it may, it may be, <laughs> that may well be. There's a movie with John Wayne of all people called True Grit. True Grit. And um, here I failed my doctoral exams as I told you before. Yeah. And this was absolutely devastating to me. Though I really didn't like how they were t- teaching me anthropology. Was it that you disagreed? I think what happened was they wanted me to do all these details and just regurgitate details when I wanted to include the details but do big conceptualizations. And they did not want a humble graduate student doing big conceptualizations. I understood Levi Strauss, who I claimed to understand, and they were clueless about it. I said, oh, yeah, this is straight and totemism and savage mind. And I found out more recently that I can conceptualize broadly where many people can't. And it's only now that I better understand why I got into trouble. But what made me come back to it, I taught elementary school, fifth and sixth grade. My goodness. For two years, and I was a failure in that I couldn't, I got the students excited, the kids excited, but I couldn't keep them disciplined and quiet all the time. (laughs) (laughs) When I talk to students at college, I think, could you quiet down, quiet please? And they do get that quiet, unlike the kids. But that made me much more engaged as a teacher, much more concerned for students learning, or for this project I'm trying to do about assessing learning. You may have seen today the PISA scores came out, P-I-S-A, but they're not bad. And what PISA does is really make these countries try and shape up. The United States has spent billions of dollars on trying to figure out how to do it, and they're not doing so well. Australia is in pain right now. I'm sure some the Minister of Education is rather concerned about how he's going to explain this and what he's going to do, more importantly, what he's going to do. But this is... A pretty impressive thing. I forgot how we got onto pizza, but it's very important. In some ways, I feel a little surprised to hear you say that, thinking about the way that university rankings yep. work and the kind of work and the kind of, it seems to me, often unhealthy work that's put towards university rankings and, and departmental <coughs> rankings. Let's talk about that, yeah. Are Go they on. not somewhat analogous? I'm not saying kids shouldn't have the opportunity to uh, have good teachers in elementary or primary school, but do you see some parallels between those those kinds of metrics? For some perverse reason, perhaps, I studied a lot about the the rankings. I forget the full name of it in the United States where they did these rankings, and they did very simple, direct statements. And they were clear rankings, but everybody agreed they weren't really perfect. They were unclear. But it's like the metrics that we talked about before. People just went for them because they were neat and ordered, okay? Yeah. There's this funny thing someone was telling me, I guess from the Chronicle of Higher Education, he's saying, he was talking to someone at the University of Illinois, and the person was ranting about how these rankings were really unfair. They were just numbers. They couldn't make any sense. And then the person said, do you know University of Illinois in anthropology is number 10? He said, oh. Maybe the rankings are okay. <laughs> <laughs> what they do, and I experimented with that, and if you look at the website, publicanthropology.org, there's something in there about trying to rank all these departments in terms of public engagement. And I don't think I was successful. I sent letters out to all the chancellors or presidents and vice presidents. I didn't get many letters back. Um, people did take it. They used it in getting new positions, I'm told. The value of these, it struck me, was to try and get people to think about whether they're doing good in the way that wraps them up in their own status concerns. Mm-hmm. So the status concerns yeah. may be BS, but they motivate people. Yeah. And you start with what motivates people to try and get them to do good. 
to try and move them in the direction. Right, you right. You were talking about the lecture. You get them over there, they get engaged, and then they walk away. So you have to get something that grabs them. A bit of chocolate on your vegetables. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> a little status on your um, effort of being nice to other people. <laughs> so the rankings aren't that meaningful in some sense, but in other senses, they motivate people in some ways. Mm. These citation scores are pure BS in an important way because they're just citing the people without necessarily engaging with their ideas. Mm. And that may well happen with public anthropology, with in, in anthropology of anthropology, with what I do. But the idea is, can you move them beyond that? Can you start them to try and do good? I think it's an idea that's ahead of its time in some ways, in that as there's more accountability... In the government, you often use metrics to do these. And people trying to escape the metrics might then go to stories of how they're doing good. And then we might be in a better position. But the old excitement, there was gods of the upper air, I think, about Mead and Boaz and Benedict. The idea is that anthropology had excitement, had purpose, had vision of new possibilities for human beings. That's been lost. There's this apparatchatnik, this it's yeah. a Russian word. I don't know if you know, but it mm. means organization, men, people of the system. We anthropologists have become that. Well, I'm trying to provoke, possibly, that you get excited by, perhaps, is new possibilities, is moving beyond that, trying to create something that empowers you, perhaps, but also others. Mm. And, you know, a good relationship is when you both are empowered, not just one. And it seems to me there's a, a great need for innovation, for imagination, for creativity right. in doing this, right? right? We have to think outside the, the structures that we're, right. that we're part of. Anthropology often tries to get all these new possibilities, and anthropologists in the entrepreneurial ways do this myriad of possibilities, but you get lost in it. They don't, no one else listens to someone else. I was talking to someone about Yeats' second coming, and the falcon cannot hear the falconer, um, that things fall apart because everybody is going off in their own directions. But the question is, here's a direction. Can they benefit others? Can they really demonstrate anthropology's value in ways that other people will then come back and tell stories to the assessors yeah. about how important it was to them? I wondered if maybe those kids one day in the PISA <laughs> metrics <laughs> will be writing stories about their experiences of school right. and judged on that. Um, but what PISA does is it makes some people compete for status in a way that's good, that makes them really rethink where they're learning. Now, here's an interesting thing. There's a school, I forget the school, it's in Harlem in New York, and it does very well on the New York's region exams, these exams that every high school student has to do. And these are people from poor neighborhoods. And the question is, how do these schools do this magic of getting all these poor kids to do so well? And the school says it's because of how we teach them. But it turns out, someone studied them, and what it was was the schools say parents have to spend two hours a day working with their kids. They have to do all these different things, and they have to attend every faculty meeting, every meeting, parent participation. <laughs> if you're not there on time, you get dropped. So parents are absolutely committed to their child's education or children's education. And that context makes a big difference. And so... That's an interesting idea. Says so all these billions and all these other things. Says so the man who can't go to his own stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to have parents really mm. engage with that, find a space in the system that could really 
make a difference. Because the school parents and hopefully child hold the same values. Yeah. Just as an aside, I would go into the teacher, my children's teachers, every two weeks or so, because it was in public school, and in Hawaii they're not so great at times, and just talk to the teacher. We might talk about the weather or not, and my daughter would be there um, in the classroom seeing me talking to the teacher, and everything would go well. My daughter would see I was talking to the teacher. The teacher would take notice of my daughter, and they would pay more attention. That came out of my experience as an elementary school teacher. Here again, there's this hegemonic structure of poor education in many places, but there's a way around it without spending billions. That's a really nice example of these spaces that we're all now going to be looking for. Thank you very much, Rob. Okay, thank you. That was it, me and Professor Robert Borowski. Today's episode was produced by me, Kylie Wong-Dolan, with help from the other familiar strangers, Julia Brown, Alex DeLoyer, Jodie Lee Trembath, and Simon Theobald. Our executive producers are Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes or dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us to make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, but it's not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>